Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hello again, everybody. Welcome. I'm Andy Baylog. And I'm Jordan Pine. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Andy, pop quiz. Where's Titus in the Bible? Okay, so I know this. Titus is a book in the Bible. It is in the New Testament, and it's positioned right after 2 Timothy and right before Philemon. That's right. Good job. It's a little uh, pastoral letter in the back of the Bible that has some great advice from the Apostle Paul for church leaders. Plus, it reinforces a few key kingdom truths. So cool. Let's check it out. Sounds good, brother. Please open your Bibles to the book of Titus, and get ready to join us for another 20-minute Bible study. A reading from the letter to Titus in the New Living Translation, chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. With an open mind and an open heart, we seek to take out of the Bible what God has put into it. And that means it's time to go to space. Yes, the word space. So to any of you first-time listeners out there, we don't want to freak you out. Space is just an acronym that we created that reminds us to identify the SP, the A, and the C, which represents the speaker, the audience, and the context before we attempt an E or explanation. It's a Bible study tool. So today we see that the speaker is the Apostle Paul, who at this time was an aging man, and this was approximately 66 AD in timeline. And the audience is Titus. Titus was an early church leader, and he was a trusted companion of the Apostle Paul. And interesting, he was also a born-again Gentile Christian. There wasn't many at this time, but he was one of them. Yeah, great point. And as I mentioned at the top of this uh, episode, the audience could also be considered any church leader today. Along with the two letters to Timothy, Titus is considered a pastoral epistle, or a letter for pastors. The context, generally speaking, is the qualifications for church leaders. The context is also Paul warning Titus about the people in the city of Crete, which is where he had left him to lead the church there. In Titus chapter 1, for example, Paul writes that there are many, quote, rebellious people who insist on circumcision for salvation, end quote, and he spares no words in condemning these Cretans. Let's listen as Steve gives us a taste of his words. An additional reading from Titus, going back to the first chapter and beginning in verse 11. They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, 
a prophet from Crete, has said about them, the people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. I mean, ouch, that's harsh. And in Titus 2.15, Paul encourages his protege to stand up and fight for God's truth. You have the authority, he writes, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. All right, Jordan. Now that we've covered the speaker, audience, and context, we're ready to continue reading and attempt an explanation. Once again, we're in Titus chapter 3 today. So let's go back and we'll pick it up in verse 4. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, so this is what we often call the gift. It's contrasted in the New Testament with the prize, which we'll talk about soon. But what I wanted to point out here is that in this somewhat obscure little letter from Paul to Titus, there's yet another proof of the Trinity. In our lesson on the Trinity, we talked about how many deny the Trinity because it is a doctrine, not a specific word that appears in the Bible. Then we argued and showed with many verses that the three persons of the Trinity are all throughout the Bible. Well, here they are again in Titus 3. Verse 4 speaks of God our Savior, and that's obviously God the Father. Verse 5 specifically name-checks the Holy Spirit, and verse 6 ends the thought with Jesus Christ our Savior. It's such a perfect, succinct statement about the Trinity, Christians could actually use it as an official explanation of that doctrine, and how the three persons of the Godhead relate to one another. Yeah, Jordan, I agree with you 100% there. You know, there's other places in the Bible that showcase the Trinity. Me personally, I like to use Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. And John writes this, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So there we have a depiction of God the Father. And then he goes on to write, And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, Andy, I never heard seven spirits. I thought there was one Holy Spirit. What's going on here? Are you crazy? Well, actually, the seven spirits are just the way the Bible uses to describe the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit. And just so to prove that I'm not crazy, you can go to Isaiah chapter 11, and you will see there the seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. So take a look at that. I think it's in verse 2 and 3, Isaiah chapter 11. And then finally, John writes in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 to 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's God the Son. So simply again, we see God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son in many places in the Bible, including Revelation chapter 1. So now, continuing in verse 7. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Okay, so this is the kind of verse that readers will just breeze by, and I'll miss something important. That's because it seems to reinforce the previous verse, In his love, God gave us new life, 
and poured out his Holy Spirit upon us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of that grace, he gave us eternal life. Amen. Next verse. But wait, that's not actually what it says. It says God gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. If you were with us when we studied 2 Thessalonians and talked about eternal destruction, or everlasting destruction in the the NIV, you'll notice that word eternal here, and you'll wonder, is it the same Greek word that we studied? Yes, it's the word that means age-lasting, not forever-lasting. Another clue as to its true meaning is the word before it, inherit. Those who've been studying with us for a long time know about inheritance, the promises made to Israel, and the millennial kingdom of Christ Jesus that's coming. But the typical response, and the reason why people miss the kingdom here, is they'll read, we will inherit, as a statement of certainty. But let's look back at the phrases before it. Paul writes, God, quote, made us right in his sight, end quote, that's justification, or the gift again. And then he writes, and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. He didn't write, notice, gave us eternal life. He wrote that God gave us confidence, not certainty, that will inherit that life. In the NIV, this verse is much more conditional as it should be. It reads, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal, or again, age-lasting, life. And that's speaking about the prize, not the gift, and about the kingdom. As we'll see in the verses that follow, Paul is intent on reminding the church of why they should have this confidence and on telling them how to maintain it. He wants them to know how to make sure they inherit life in the kingdom and don't slide back into old sins that could put them on the outside looking in. That's correct, Jordan. You know, a good example of that, which we often study, is the entire Sermon on the Mount. And that could be found in detail in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. So the words Jesus spoke there were directed to his disciples and not the average believer. That is very, very, very important detail, never to forget that those words, those teachings are not just for the average new born-again Christian. It's for someone who's studying to be more than that, to be a student or a disciple of Jesus Christ. And because you're listening to this show right now, all of us need to apply those teachings in the Sermon on the Mount to our everyday lives if we expect a better chance of being joint heirs with Christ during his 1,000-year millennial kingdom, which is coming soon. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. That phrase, good and beneficial, affirms what we just said, doesn't it, Andy? Good and beneficial in what way? Well, I like the way the NASB puts it. I prefer that in this case, and I'm going to read that. And it says, these things are good and profitable for men. Whereas the other version that you just spoke of is good and beneficial. And that can be interpreted as, well, it's good for you. You know, it's, it's to your own benefit. It makes your life better, your life on earth. But that wasn't the context of this scripture. The NASB puts it well when it's, when it's, again, uses the word profitable there, good and profitable for men. Now, the word profit, when you look it up in the Greek and do the study, suggests a return on investment. 
Some of you might say ROI. God invested the Holy Spirit in us when we believed in him. Remember that. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And we must, as his servants, as his disciples, turn a spiritual prophet for our master in order to one day be rewarded by him. Now, the message from Paul here is the same. Encouraging us, the reader, Titus, and in exchange, whoever's reading those verses today, to teach Christians, teach ourselves, and teach other Christians as well, to perform good deeds through the Holy Spirit, but for the right reason. Remembering that in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically Matthew 6, verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples, quote, to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not get involved in foolish discussion about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels or fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth and their own sins condemn them. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. The title of today's lesson comes from the NIV Bible's header for the passage that we studied today, Saved in Order to Do Good. And that's the message to take away from this study today. Not just do good for goodness sake, but good so that we can continue in the hope that we will become heirs of the promises, rulers in the kingdom of Christ Jesus, which is coming soon. Amen. I agree to that, Jordan. And what is coming soon is the rapture of believers, and then, of course, the judgment seat of Christ. And if you want to learn more about that, definitely take the time. It became Jordan and I's, one of our top 10 probably favorite scripture references. We recommend you study 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. It specifically speaks about the judgment seat of Christ to learn about that event. It's truly a blessing. Okay, Andy, we have some time left, so let's consider uh, an objection to our lesson today. We like to think about um, what, what objections listeners might have in mind. So um, let's go ahead and tackle one of those. All right, children. So here's one for you. I personally can imagine some people thinking, should we really put people out of the church or have nothing more to do with them, as Paul says in today's scripture reading? Can we do that today? Most churches, however, do the opposite. They try to be inclusive as possible. So a question is, is that wrong from a biblical perspective? And another question is, is there some way to be inclusive, but also follow the instructions of these verses that we studied today? Andy, I think there's some guidance for how to do it in the verse itself. Paul writes, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. In 2 Corinthians, Paul affirms this sort of three strikes and you're out rule. He writes, This is the third time I am coming to visit you. I have already warned those who had been sinning. Now I again warn them and all others, just as I did before, that next time I will not spare them. End quote. Jordan, let me, let me just interject for a second, right? So there's something beautiful there that I want to bring out that I think it's probably the elephant in the room. Okay. And it's what you just read where Paul is saying, I already warned those who had been sinning. The question is, what are these sins? 
Is he is he judging them and calling them out because they do everyday simple sins? No. Based on the context of what we studied today, there's a different doctrine that people were bringing in to the local church at the time, trying to penetrate the the solid foundational teachings of Christianity, right? Pure Christianity, which mainly teaches us that salvation is by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast, which leads to predestination. And that's, you know, Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. And you could read all you want about predestination in Romans, throughout the book of Romans. So the question I have today is, you know, what what's your opinion on that? In the modern church, they would probably read this, and I'm sure they're preaching this if they ever even get into the book of Titus. And, and try to tell people, you know, warn people about sin and bringing in simple sin. But this particular sin is the type of sin that permeates and causes a, an, an epidemic amongst all the members, right? It's not like one specific person robbed another a member of the church's cattle or their goat, you know what I mean? And okay, we've got to warn them, don't rob your neighbor, right? No, this is something really serious to Paul that it's biblical and it's written in the book of Titus. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're right. Cause it's causing, it's causing divisions that are eroding uh, the foundation of the church. And you can see that in the sense of, um, you know, in his letters to Timothy, Paul gets into even more detail and he's talking about elders, you know, the leadership of the church, you know, he says, quote, who sin and should be reprimanded in front of the whole church so that that can serve as a strong warning to others. Yeah. He's not talking about simple, uh, everyday type sins. He's talking about the sort of um, false teachings and the sort of and the sort of sins that will eventually erode the very foundation of the church, and you know the um, the methodology here is what I, what I'm particularly interested in because, like you were saying, it, it can be easy to misinterpret this, overinterpret this, you know, and there's a very specific process that, of course, comes from the teachings and guidance of Jesus Himself about how to handle such a thing, right? So. In Matthew 18, for example, Jesus tells his disciples, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. So that's step one. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back, right? So easy, step one. You know, they say, they say I'm sorry, I, you're right, I sinned, it's over. Right, right. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So this is a very scriptural principle going back to the Old Testament. The next step is with witnesses. And then if the person still refuses to listen, you take your case to the church, and then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, then finally you treat that person, he says, as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector, as someone who's a sinner and you must now expel. So, you know, although this is for personal offenses, we can see a similar pattern, a, a disciplined escalation, if you will, and several attempts to correct to correct a person, a believer, a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Christ, before you get to this extreme step of expulsion. Sure. And you know, inclusion in its modern meaning is a is a different thing. You know, it starts with seeking out and inviting in yeah. people who are already out of line with God's ways. So we need to address that, Andy, and, and why it's sure. a bad idea. You know, Paul is explicit in other places about this, but here in Titus, he sort of hints at hints at that thing when he writes about 
avoiding foolish discussions and quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. That that's a that was the main issue of inclusion in their day was, you know, the most of the Christians were former Jews and they had all these um, beliefs about who should be who should be in the body and who shouldn't be in the body based on the old Jewish laws. So, you know, whether it's a regressive idea like that or the so-called progressive ideas that, that are invading our church today, the same sort of logic applies here. Like, you know, I mean, I'll ask you, you know, why is it a bad idea, Andy, to let those ideologies remain in, in the body of Christ? That's a great question, brother. That's a great question. You know, the first thing I think of is kind of like that, that old adage, you know, for, for you conservative Christians out there, you probably stand strong to this statement I'm going to say, which is basically you hate to sin, but you love the sinner. And that's, that's important to people who are new to Christianity or people who are, who have not accepted Jesus as savior. We have to portray love. It's a must. Jesus is love. It's what God's all about, right? It's about right. unmeasured favor that God presents to everyone, and it's about mercy and forgiveness. But if you think about it, the context of Titus, which many of the epistles, if not all of them, are written to exist for existing churches to be careful about falling into their old ways. So it was more about um, a reprimand to the existing born-again Christian, not necessarily to a new believer. So in my opinion, which... Again, this is in line with Paul's letter to Titus. Ideology breeds false doctrine. I'll repeat that. Ideology breeds false doctrine. Now listen, don't get me wrong. I know this. There will always be individuals who stray into sin in every and any church or any denomination, myself included. I'll be the first one to tell you I'm a chief sinner, okay? I don't want to be, but I'll admit it. I'm honest with God, and I'll be honest with everyone listening. However, if a doctrine being taught deviates from pure biblical truths, the result is a crack in the foundation. For example, a false teaching like salvation is not secure can cause this, easily cause this. And eventually, the bubblegum fix for the crack is when traditions are introduced into a church which are just really man-made rules, man's traditions. Jesus warned about that. He warned the Pharisees about that. So unfortunately, these man-made rules end up superseding God's infallible word. So in summary, Jordan, in order to remain leak-proof and sustainable during the attacks of the world around us, Christians must diligently stick to God's truth and always obey what he teaches us. Yeah, great points, Andy, and we'll leave it there for today. That's 20 Minutes, and that's our lesson. Before we go, don't forget, we want to hear from you. We welcome your questions and comments, even if you don't agree with us. I mean, we prefer if you agree with us, but obviously, we're also interested in if you don't and hearing your um, Bible-backed reasons why. Feel free to just give us a call and leave a message. Our number is 908 2716717. If you ask a good question or make a good point, we may even put you on the show. Once again, our number is area code 908-271-6717. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Or you could visit our website at 20mbs.org. 
That's the number 20, followed by the letters mbs.org. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple. Our music was recorded by the Abundant Life Worship Center. Our sound editor is J.P. Eli. I'm Steve Zioli, and until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Reserved Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.